Welcome to Neo Academia, where the walls of the ivory tower are shifting. I'm your host, Natasha Mott, and this week I explored the concept of the burning paper belt with author, venture capitalist, and renegade philosopher Michael Gibson. Michael is the co-founder of the 1517 Fund, a venture capital fund investing in teams led by dropouts and renegade scientists who reject the standard notion of academic credentials. Before that, he was a vice president for grants at the Teal Foundation, where he helped launch and run the Teal Fellowship. Michael's debut book, The Paper Belt on Fire, is the story of how he got here after dropping out of a PhD program in philosophy. Just a quick note before we get started, I'm changing the format of this podcast moving forward, bringing episodes out from behind the paywall so there will be no more bonus content. If you value this work and want to support it, head over to the newsletter to take advantage of a special offer where you can get 50% off of a subscription to celebrate two years of Theory Gang. Neo Academia is also possible through support from Readocracy. Readocracy is on a mission to save the internet by making how we inform ourselves matter. So they've created a first of its kind technology that rewards people for consuming high quality content. Readocracy makes the content you consume count, awarding points, badges, LinkedIn upgrades, and insights into your information diet. These insights are like a Fitbit for your mind. They can help you understand how your information diet is affecting how you think and feel. Readocracy has won awards and backing from Mozilla and Betaworks, and is used by curious minds at Stripe, Cisco, Zoom, and over 30 other top companies and schools. Neo Academia is proud to be sponsored by Readocracy and has a series of collections curated by me and each of our guests on Readocracy.com. And for access to the Neo Academia resource collections, head over to theorygang.io forward slash newsletter for this episode's show notes. Now let's explore. Where are you today? Uh, so I'm in Los Angeles in Santa Monica for a uh, Christmas party this weekend. And then because I'm doing book stuff, I had a small get together last night talk about the book with some people here nice how sick are you of talking about this book <laughs> <laughs> not sick enough i think yeah, yeah. <laughs> to get out there more <laughs> well it just came out uh yeah on the 29th yeah i saw it like that i don't know i think that day on twitter and i was like paper belt yeah let me read it um and i read <laughs> okay. it that weekend and i emailed you i was like bro yeah i need yeah. to talk to you yeah, so I, I, I'm with a small publisher, Encounter. They put out like, you know, maybe six, eight books a year. <clears throat> and, you know, I've done my best to get it out there, but it's interesting. Like, you know, the paper belt itself doesn't care much about the book. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> so, right. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, the paper belt doesn't care about the books it puts out anyways. So, yeah, right. You know, and it's funny you mentioned your publisher because I'm like, I saw your publisher and I was like, this guy, this, you know, so I was like, this, you are like a, you're like a, a CIA fanboy kind of, right? Like, <laughs> You know, that was just coincidence, I think. Um, I don't know. Yeah. How, how, you've read into the book some then? Uh, the publisher? Yeah, or have you? Well, in my book, I talk about how oh, I. Yeah, I read the whole book. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, like that whole thing, I had already written and whatever. And then I. <clears throat> Or I had an agent, and and the agent started sending the book out to okay. all these thought publishers, Penguin, Knopf, whoever, and they all rejected it. It was like we sent it out, and this pot, this agent was so surprised. But it was like, um, you know, a third of the people who rejected it, they said, uh, "Well, so I used to work for Peter Thiel, and I guess they hate Thiel for his support of Trump in 2016, the Gawker stuff. I don't know." So they write back, they say, "Peter Thiel is evil." And anyone who works with him is evil. I was like, all right. Uh, 
then another third rejected it because they said, oh, I went to Yale and studied literature and my college degree is amazing and I think college is great. It's like, all right, well, that's your opinion. Good. <laughs> and, uh, and then the last third were like, yeah, this isn't for us. So at that point, I thought the book was dead. And then uh, editor I worked with uh, at City Journal introduced me to Roger Kimball at, at Encounter. And he you know, read the proposal and he's like, all right, we're publishing this. I was like, amazing. And then I found out that like Encounter had been financed by the CIA. <laughs> yeah. Dude, I, like I run a meme page and I like just interviewing you period. Like I've, my meme cred has gone down significantly. Like just have, <laughs> they already think I'm CIA. It's like, there's the running joke in like the oh meme world of like any women who make memes are immediately CIA. Oh my god, honey pots. Yes. <laughs> We're collecting like who's yeah. yeah, it's like a good way to collect all the weirdos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I saw some tweet recently that was like this Chinese woman and she's like, it's hard to be Chinese and conservative because everyone either thinks you're a Chinese spy or <laughs> or just strange. Yeah. yeah. But probably both in some way. Yeah. <laughs> so you're a writer, you know what I mean? Like you're a VC guy, you're a philosopher guy, you know, mm -hmm. maybe like a wannabe CIA guy, but you're, <laughs> you're a writer. Like, yeah, I mean, deep down, that's uh, what I've always wanted to do. When I was 19, I like only entered a PhD track because I saw some writers I admired who had PhDs. Um, and then, and then when I dropped out, I, you know, one of the key moments for me, I was, I was in grad school for a long time. And then I picked up a copy of Tom Wolfe's new journalism collection. So in the, in the 1960s, <clears throat> there was this wonderful experimental period where these writers like Tom Wolfe, Joan Didion, Hunter S. Thompson, to some degree, he, although maybe he fabricated stuff. Um, but there were a group of writers who were using the tools and techniques of, of the novel and applying it to telling true stories. And I loved that stuff. That was my um, bread and butter when I was in my 20s, like the, the new journalism in the 1960s was just fantastic. So then I'm, I'm in this basement and I find this collection and I'm reading through these excerpts of people's stories. And I was just like, why the hell am I in grad school? I, I really just want to write. Um, so <clears throat> I dropped out, you know, not too soon after that. And I thought I'd be a journalist for a time, cut the fat off my prose before I get to the main event, which would be, you know, a novel or, or some kind of nonfiction book. Um, and then, you know, life took its course. Uh, so that was in, you know, like 2008 or so. And then I found my way to Silicon Valley and, and that whole adventure ensued. So I, I, I kept writing along that time. I kept contributing to magazines and stuff, but I did always have, <clears throat> have this idea that I'd get around to writing a book. I wrote a series of articles in starting in 2018 on the decline of San Francisco. And that's when this agent reached out and he said, Hey, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, well, why? Yes, I have. <laughs> and, and so I, I said, yeah, okay. I talked to him. I, he had some, he wanted me to focus mainly on the decline of Silicon Valley. I wanted to tell our story as a fund. And that was other pushback from those publishers. So that story where they rejected it, like there were a number of people who rejected it because they didn't want to hear stories. They wanted me to write some kind of policy book on the failures of higher education or the problems of the ivory tower. That's not your bag. Yeah. I always like snore and that's like so boring. So, 
I didn't want to do that. And, and then even when I was working with Encounter and I'm going through the editorial process, I remember one time this copy editor at one point was like, this reads too much like a novel. I was like, but exactly. Right. That's why it's good. That's why I read it in two days. Yeah. Right. No, and I think all of, I mean, I have, there's a million books on the decline of academia and yeah, right. they're dry as shit. You know, mm. it's, um, yours is a, an interesting perspective because while I agree that the paper belt is kind of on fire, I mm-hmm. think it's like, you know how in Virginia there's those underground fires? Yeah, right, that they I, cook pigs with. <laughs> no, no, I'm talking about like, um, there's a coal Oh, you mine. mean like the coal mines, yeah, yes. right. Okay. I feel like that's what's happening. Um, yeah. Like, because if you ask anybody in academia- That's a good example. Like, they don't think it's on fire. They're like, no, you can never destroy the behemoth. Um, <laughs> and while I agree that the institution mm. itself has been around, I mean, Plato's Academy, you know, it, it's yeah, survived right. millennia. The form that it's in can't survive. It's doing too many things. The concept of the multiversity is, it's, right. it's wiling out. It's too much. And it's going to unbundle. And it is unbundling. And anybody who doesn't yeah. see that, well, they're very short-sighted. Uh, yeah, I think it really comes to a head in the discussion about the student debt issue. I wish people paid more attention to who the main culprit was. What's weird is like, we're going to forgive $40 billion in loans. And then what? In five years, we're going to do debt cancellation again? Or in 10 years? It's like just the same thing is going to keep happening. Um, so that's a little odd to me. But I think people are starting to sense that, okay, well... This is very expensive. We're not certain what the value is, and people have a ton of debt, so something's got to shift. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this with this podcast I started, about what the signal of academia looks like, because I do believe in the Brian Kaplan signaling hypothesis that that's what it is. And it does almost nothing except serve as a stamp of societal approval, because my husband owns a a tech recruiting firm, and... Mm. He's like, this, I don't give a shit where you went. I don't, you know, maybe yeah, it'll help maybe. if the hiring manager went to Villanova and so did you. Cool. But he's like, this doesn't tell me what your intrinsic motivation is. And mm-hmm. it's all the things that you write in this book about kind of recruiting and the Tyler right. Cohen idea of recruiting, the university stamp of approval does none of that. So when the structure of societal approval collapses, this, mm-hmm. the university will be meaningless in its current form. Yeah, I think we need replacements. We need some kind of substitute signal, alternative signal. You know, the paper belt, you know, just maybe for listeners, if they (laughs) haven't seen the cover of the book, the paper belt refers to this geographic region that's become more of a symbol than an actual place from Washington, D.C. to uh, Boston. So um, in in D.C., they print laws, paper, uh, on money uh, on paper, they print uh, regulations on paper. In Delaware, people incorporate on paper. In New York, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal print on paper. Um, Madison Avenue ads on paper. And then symbolically, Boston, you have Harvard and MIT printing diplomas on paper. A buddy of mine, we, we were jamming back in 2013 or so, and, and he coined this term, the paper belt. But the idea was that, you know, just as the Rust Belt had fallen you know apart and disintegrated 
that in the next decade or so that you know the paper belt was going to be under attack for for different reasons i mean for its own part because it was these institutions aren't serving their purposes but then also what can we establish to replace them and one of the things i go into in the book probably too, for too long is just uh satoshi nakamoto's original thinking behind bitcoin <clears throat> and i think it's important because it it it's it's a way to analyze these institutions and how they work uh, and then, therefore, to understand how, they, how they're failing us. So the fact that anything based on paper, like a diploma, or it could be a medallion, like a taxi system, um, is like that paper only has power because it represents some institution that has authenticated it. And that requires the insiders of the institution to have this process. Okay, you get a medallion, you get a diploma. We validate that this means something. Um, and what Nakamoto pointed out is that these these trusted third parties are susceptible to collusion and corruption and so on. And so with the case of the university, I think this diploma, this piece of paper is authenticated by some institution. But what's not clear is like, OK, can we trust the people doing the authentication anymore? And number two is like, what is this signal? And I think what you referred to is right is that it doesn't actually refer to the skills that someone has it refers to the you know okay they undertook some four-year project they followed orders they got things done they didn't raise a ruckus and they're hard workers and okay that, that helps the labor market but do we really want you know the labor market to outsource its interviewing process to universities they're bad at interviewing the government years for them to hire <laughs> Right. So there has to be some alternative uh, to that paper-based system of authentication. I mean, I, it's like there are little things here and there, but what I, you know, in my story is like we started the Teal Fellowship, we were awarded grants, and then, and now we make investments. And, and in a sense, it's like the, the act of investing and then someone actually growing a business is, is the real signal, not some third party signaling something based on work done around a clock tower, something mm -hmm. like that. Right. Yeah. You talk about the clock tower. I think it's a it's something I hadn't thought about, about the concept and the invention of slave labor. The book is great. You know, I just, I oh, love, nice. you know, I think what you write in there is really lovely, but I want to talk about um, decentralization for a second, because mm. one of my main questions I had for you was you're scraping off the, the cream off yeah, the top. Yeah. You know, didn't you get banned from MIT campus or something yeah, like that? Banned from MIT. <laughs> you're, not, you're not allowed <laughs> to go there and, you know, um, pull off their best students. So that's cool for them. But like, what about all the rest of the midwits? <laughs> no, like, um, yeah. no, I'm serious though. Uh, they don't have a signal uh, with automation. Right. They, they, and, and, and I think when you were talking, I just might've solved, answered my question. What, I don't even know if you think this or not, but I just was like, yeah. oh, this is what he wants to do. So you're creating a signal for the best and brightest mm. with the Teal Fellowship the Vital Futurans, you know, and then the thing is that they create the signal for everybody else, in my opinion. Right. First of all, just the technical barrier to understanding what's happening in crypto mm. is a signal. Yeah. There's a lot of fakers, but I think what you're doing by just planting a seed and letting someone grow something, hopefully something you have cultivated will then grow a new signal that will help all ships rise. Yeah. I think that's good. That's that's right with the Teal Fellowship is like if you establish the reputation of someone like Vitalik then someone else who comes down the line and gets the grant, you know, maybe they get some of that halo based on the previous success of other people. 
you know, I look to things like GitHub. This is this repository where engineers upload their code. And if you, I mean, you can be a pseudonymous avatar. You don't even need to be like a real person on there. But as long as you are authenticated as the creator of the code in that repository, all your peers have voted on it. Um, yeah, that is a stronger resume than, than anything you could put on LinkedIn. And I've seen people get hired by big tech companies and startups just based on their, their GitHub, which is basically a portfolio that's been evaluated. Mm-hmm. So what I think has to happen for, for uh, you know, the midwits or, okay, the average Joe, I think Sorry, we... Um, <laughs> yeah, in, no one who listens to this is a midwit. <laughs> okay. I love that meme. The midwit meme is pretty wild. Funny. Okay, so our K-12 through system is a disaster. I mean, the fact that it's like this factory system and everyone has to march in line at the same pace, um, you know, sitting in rows of desks for hours on end is, is mind-bogglingly stupid. There's no way this is the best way to educate people. But what's more is that even the best that they've tried to do in K-12 through to impart skills to people is, is not that effective either. And you can even look at the, the basics. It's like literacy. If you look at California, something like 23% of adults are functionally illiterate. What does that mean? It means they can read some words, but they're not, they can't read contracts and understand them uh, and so on. Uh, that's outrageous to me. That, that means that whatever is happening in the public school system in California is failing. So what's the alternative? <clears throat> the alternative is the best way to learn skills is actually on the job or under the mentorship of someone who actually does the work. And in Switzerland, I, I went to Switzerland this last year again, and, and uh, I, I discovered they have a very robust apprenticeship program. Something like 70% of all their teens are in this apprenticeship program. And w- what that means is their week looks like, okay, they have some classwork, but then they also have some time on the job learning underneath someone. Uh, and, and this is not just manufacturing or you know construction. It's also retail finance and other jobs and not all these people go to college i mean they start their careers and and they have skills and they're rewarded uh and what you see in switzerland is they don't have this underclass of like 20 somethings who are indebted and skillless and and yet entitled because they think they you know they studied some great books or something and now they can't possibly pick up a hammer so i think like we could have some national policy debate about okay what does that look like in terms of reforming k through 12 but the key point would be we need to help people establish their reputations early a reputation for showing up on time learning the work and we could do that it doesn't have to be crypto it could also be you know contractor work but we don't because it's like right now american society is all geared towards this colossal assembly line to some fake pre-professional degree and until that ends you know we're we're always going to be we're going to be stuck in this in this nightmare yeah there's a couple things with the k through 12 thing that i was thinking about we were talking one thing i was talking about with michael Shermer is why don't we teach critical thinking yeah i mean that's a that's a thing we need first of all and second of all the thing about the apprenticeship in switzerland i mean when i was in grad school i had high school students but they were the best and brightest, you know, they were Mm -hmm. in special programs and they were brilliant. And that's not right either. And I think what we need is probably like a reversal of undergrad and grad school. If you think about it, like maybe we need grad school first because- What do you mean like focus and dedication? Like like you talk about like problem-based question, 
And um, I was thinking on my other podcast, we, we goof around so much. So we're talking about next season, just mm. digging into like the top 10 problems of the world and just fucking around on the podcast, like joking about it and mashing them up with what we consider like fake <laughs> cultural problems. Um, wow, so, that'd be brilliant. I'd love to watch that. Or that, oh, it's Oh, it's funny as shit. We have so much fun. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, in the book, I get into like the last third of the book, I go through some unsolved problems in different fields of science and technology. I mean, I could have kept going. Um, and it occurred to me is that, you know, people don't really know what it takes to become great in a specific field. So it's like if, if, if I, I think of these things as arenas of ambition. <clears throat> and how do we get younger people to strive to participate in one of these arenas of ambition? If you look at basketball, football, whatever, there's no problem. It's like tens of thousands of young people will pour into those sports. Some small few will get to go play in college or the pros. But everyone is so energetic to try to become great. Same isn't true for some of these scientific fields where the idea of greatness is maybe go to grad school, get into a top program, and then, okay, maybe you get tenure at Harvard. What you do during that time to get those things isn't inconsequential. No one really knows. Um, and so it's like I was thinking about Andrew Wiles, the, the guy who proved Fermat's last theorem. And it turned out that when he was working on that, apparently he was so ashamed that he was working on the problem. He did not tell anyone for like seven, eight years. He was just in, in, in hiding. And every year or two, he'd have to like put out some side research, publish that just to make sure that he was being published still, because everyone would ask what you're working on. And he couldn't admit that he was working on, you know, this great unsolved problem in mathematics. But he was, thank God. And then, you know, he prove the theorem. So that, that's incredible. But it's interesting to me that you, it's like you can't, you can't say you're entering physics as an 18 year old and say, Oh, yeah, I'm going to be the one who unifies uh, quantum mechanics and relativity. It's like that. If you said you're that, an yeah, you're an asshole. <laughs> right. But I think if we like if somehow, but how else are you going to motivate people to dedicate their lives to these things? If it's not like, can you make this major contribution to the field? Um, so in a way, when you say reverse grad school, okay, I'm like, yeah, you're right. Cause one of the things I think it would be important is to somehow bring that frontier closer to people in their teens. Cause that's the exciting stuff. Right. And, and then, and then also, you know, you might get some humility from the professors you're working with where they're like, yeah, you know, I took a, I took a crack at that problem and I couldn't do it. Even though I'm tenured at Harvard, I couldn't figure this out, but maybe you can. Yeah. I. And I think you're absolutely right, because by the time I got done with my PhD, it took me about six years. I had a baby, bought a house, got married, you know, in that okay. time as well. But so I was doing a little stuff on the side, you know, but, <laughs> just, a little. <laughs> just a little. But by the time I got done, I was so jaded. And, and I think for me, there was partly being a woman as well, because I yeah. wanted to go to like, you know, this awesome UNC Chapel Hill lab and my husband's career, I couldn't, you know how this kind of stuff. Oh yeah. You're trying to balance the two, huh? You know, it just sucks. You what know? what but, subject matter were you in? Uh, neuroscience. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, you know, so I, I ended up leaving academia mm. to go work in biotech because my husband's like, don't nobody listen to broke people. Um, <laughs> and you know, he's not, he's not wrong. Yeah. Um, unfortunately. So I had to go like cash in and biotech for a little while. Um, that was wild and interesting. And mm. I. Yeah. Oh, it's own set of problems. I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. Like I was listening yeah. to Bology on the, um, on the Lex podcast talking about the FDA. I'm like, Oh, I got, I, I got to ask him to come on. Cause we got to talk about that too. But 
There's so much there. But, you know, I got tired of the the academic track. And then Mm -hmm. even the biotech track, it felt like the professional managerial class for me. Mm -hmm. Um, the, The most excitement I had was kind of working in a startup there. But it's this still this assembly line. Right. You know, that that's just it, it it makes you feel jaded. And so that's that's mm-hmm. the only way I can describe how I felt after all that education. Right. And even like, you know, an intro into a really cool career, I felt so jaded about mm-hmm. my ability to really make a real contribution. Yeah. I, I like to characterize this as just we live in a low trust society, even though it seems like we don't. And what do I mean by that? It means like that ability for young scientists to establish their reputation takes 15 years or 20 years. It's like not until you're 40 and I don't know how many butts you've kissed and how many things you've done. Only at that point do you get the grant funding to actually do something on your own. And by that time, you're probably like beat up by the system and and worn out and, and you've had to hug the coast or hug the wall so much that, you know, your ideas are incremental in the end. It's like, you're not, it's so hard to just like do something unorthodox. Um, Absolutely. I think that's true. And I think that's true even in the private sector and in biotech where biotech again is just constant scrutiny on people's credibility. Uh, What schools they went from, where's the research, what lab is it coming out of? And then, uh, and that is, is this giant effort because of the FDA, which is the ultimate paper belt authority that now has to authenticate whether or not this is, you know, effective and safe and so on. So I think that process has so many, there's so much, so many, so much sand in the gears that it, they turn so slowly that, yeah, I think it crushes people in the, in the long run. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I was going to say something about, um, about biotech, but I'm like, I don't know if I want to derail the conversation. (laughs) But, you know, think you're into science. And I think, you know, you talk about the, I like the invisible college reference Mm. at the end. And what you're you think is really important, because science is going to get privatized. And honestly, there's Mm. a there the incrementalism in academia is absurd. Like I was looking back at someone I knew in grad school, and they still working on the same problem. Like, how glad are you you didn't stay in academia? I mean, <laughs> the tedium. So, you know, you kind of, I, I, I think you're a little bit of like a, I don't want to say polymath because that's like got weird, bad connotations nowadays, but let's yeah. say polymathic. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to like tout, tout my own horn or toot my own <laughs> But I think given the nature, yeah, given, given the nature of my work, I have to, try to stay current on a number of different things but that you know there's a piece of research i cite in the book that says there are fewer and fewer renaissance people which is interesting over the last hundred years so you know why like the bigger question like why has science slowed down it seems like the rate of progress has declined over the last 50 years in particular haven't made advances in in a large number of fields i mean not not zero i mean neuroscience has made a lot of insights, especially it's after slowing. the fMRI came out. Um, but yeah, it seems like things aren't making as much headway as they used to. Yeah, um, and I think yeah. a lot of that has to do with like the way that we study things. I think about, yeah. I took virology one, two, three, signal transduction. I took all these courses that were like, you know, graduate level courses, even when I was an undergrad. Mm. And I learned so much more just being in the lab doing. 
Right. And it feels like, you know, we have all these think tanks today and I'm like, there's no place for people to actually do things and make mistakes. And this is something I think about a lot that we can all sit here and bloviate on podcasts, (laughs) but who's doing shit and and it takes money to do stuff. And I think we just need to get more people doing stuff. Right. Yeah, that's the credibility thing. I think we need to trust people to take risks earlier in their careers. So if you look at the main sources of funding, NSF, universities, they're just so conservative in what they give money to. It would be great if they could loosen up. The over-specialization has has increased over time. So that's some research, again, where it's like the number of people who can publish in different fields is decreasing. You see more more names on any scientific paper. So it's not just Einstein anymore. It's like 10 people (laughs) in 10 different labs. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, is that the cause of the stagnation or is that the symptom? I, I, I kind of think it's the symptom because I think there is a lot of it, you know, maybe in some of the really hard fields, uh, you do need super colliders and billion dollar experiments, like, uh, to understand particle physics. Okay. I get that. But there's so much of science that remains unexplored in my view. And I don't think it, it, it would require huge sums to, to really let people loose. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's like it's so hard to reform institutions from within, though. So it's mm-hmm. like, can you imagine, like, uh, what am I going to do? Like, protest outside Harvard until they start giving, you know, PhDs more money to, to run crazy experiments? Yeah. It's not going to happen. So with with fifteen seventeen, our venture, Danielle Strackman, my co-founder, and I, we started this fund, is the Invisible College, is what can we do? I mean, we're a for-profit entity, but... What can we do to back unorthodox scientists? We're, we're starting to, to probe that now. Um, we've thought about maybe setting up independent study programs for teens. Um, that, that's, it's hazy because it's really hard to do. Um, but, but we do want to, we want to do it. We want to like reinvent patronage. Um, if you look back in the, in the history of science, I mean, people used to make contributions all the time and they weren't affiliated with universities. Right. Um, so can we bring that back, uh, is, is a question we're going to explore over the next few years. Um, we have made investments in some crazy stuff, but, um, it's, it's pretty rare. We've got a guy, a young guy working on fusion, uh, in, and that's pretty wild, but, but it's also very rare and I wish we saw more of it. Right. Well, I I like that idea that you're exploring it and I'm totally into it because I think you know, thinking about decentralizing science, one of the biggest hurdles, and we're talking about all the people on papers, is the specialization. But I think about how many labs are replicating bullshit that other yeah, people right. are doing when, because the structure of academia is such that mm-hmm. if you if you put your data out there, someone who's working on it, like, you know, in the same field, is going to scoop it, and they're going to publish it first if they have an army of postdocs. Right. And so in this sense, this siloed competition is not necessarily useful for anyone. Mm. But if you could take some of the overhead that the institutions get from these grants, like let's say I get a grant from NIH, $2 million grant. I don't know how much overhead they take, but it's hundreds of thousands um, that the institution gets for just existing as a place. (laughs) They get their cut. The juice right. is running. Yeah, exactly. But because then, then the PI has to buy their $250,000 instrument and yeah. they have to have somebody to service it, have somebody to run it. But if you could provide these kinds of things and encourage interdisciplinary exploration, that would really help. Because when I was in grad school, 
my questions were confined. So I had these mm -hmm. questions that I wanted to ask and I love my advisor and PI, but she was like, we don't have the instrumentation for that. And if you try to learn that technique, it's going to take you years. And I'm like, oh, wow. I don't give a fuck. Like right. I want to, so I went over to places that had the instrumentation and had the people that could do it. Mm -hmm. And I broke out of the same rigmarole and techniques and experiments that we were doing, but most people won't do that because it's yeah. friction. So. I, yeah, I think the system of incentives matters quite a deal. So I, it, I was in philosophy, not the sciences, but even then it was like, the only way to get into a grad program was getting not your GPA or test scores or anything. It's, you know, your recommendations. And to get those recommendations, you had to, I don't know, advance the work of some professor in some way so that they liked you. Okay, you get in the grad school, then it's like rinse and repeat. It's like, okay, who's going to be your dissertation advisor? Well, someone whose views you advance. And then, you know, okay, who's going to be your postdoc? Or where are you going? And then... Uh, when you're on tenure track, how are you going to get tenure? Well, it's by not causing a ruckus in this department and advancing some view that people find acceptable. So mm -hmm. I, it, it seems like this long march to conformism in science, which is supposed to be this radical enterprise where authority is constantly challenged and all views are tested. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really frustrating. And I'm sorry to hear in your own experience that you had to fight so hard to do something interesting. That's awful. Well, that's okay because I think it brought me to where I am. You know, you have to break yeah. through something, you know, and I quit and it was a huge like identity crisis for me. I don't know oh, about when God. you, you know, I read when you, they were like, you're going to go interview Peter Thiel and you're like, okay. And then you were like, <laughs> yes. and then he was like, you want a job? And you were like, uh, I guess I'm a VC guy now. Um, <laughs> yeah, basically. Did you, yeah. did you go through like an identity crisis? A little I bit? did. It, it really occurred before then when like my first, my very first job after dropping out was as a barista. So I was one of these overeducated baristas. Nice. Um, I worked in a chocolate shop in Harvard square. We made hot chocolate fresh. It was amazing. Hot chocolate. I, I sometimes make the whipped cream by, by hand because <laughs> our machine broke down very hard work. But I just remember after an eight hour day on my feet and people yelling at me for bringing the wrong order and so on. I was like, holy shit, what did I just get myself into? Because, you know, a month ago I was in the Bodleian library re reading Plato. <laughs> So that, that that was a bit like uh, that that was a challenge to my decision was oh my god what have I gotten myself into, but like you said I don't, you know the adventure's been worth it for me uh, it certainly brought me down a strange path and uh, and and now as a critic is like maybe can I make some changes can I try something new to to help people like if I came across myself as a young man could I help that person accomplish what they really wanted to earlier or in some different fashion that, you know, I'm happy to be in this place. So what do you think is worth saving in academia that maybe could be replicated or enhanced? Well, the, in Oxford, the number one thing are the pubs. So the, the, the actual drinking places around campus. Um, I think. Oh, I thought you meant the publications. You mean like that? The, yes. Yes. I mean, the actual places where people drink beer, not the Absolutely. The pubs are. <laughs> yeah. this, is, this was my ode to the post-conference drink. Oh, okay. That's great. <laughs> totally. You know what? What they have is their legacy and the brand. And so those, those, they really do act as a, be a beacon for a lot of talented people. 
So if if somehow they could still draw people in, but give them the resources to do crazy stuff or on you know unorthodox things, I think that could be valuable. But I don't I don't know how to how how to bring that about. Well, that's um, something that I don't think they ever did. I mean, yeah. if you think about the mm. somewhat modern institutions, they were meant to train people in theology, right? And, and oh yeah, and, right. Yeah. You know, they they were never really hubs for innovation. They were. Mm. Um, places to learn the rules and how to circumvent them and at best kind of like how to live a life. Yeah. I think what's underrated is this apprenticeship model and how it should apply to everything, not just, you know, contractor work. It's actually like the highest, most highfalutin form of theoretical physics should be apprenticeship model yeah. where there's some tacit knowledge that's accumulated by working with people who are ahead of you. And it's going to take some time and just being around people, I, I think is a way of transmitting knowledge. And if you look at it, it's like, there are great professors in the past. And it's, it's funny that no one like cares why they were great. So um, Ernest Rutherford, you know, characterized the atom, he won the Nobel Prize. But one of the things that's fascinating about the man is that he had something like no fewer than 13 or 14 people under him who also won Nobel Prizes, his students. So what is it about his lab at that time, or him as a teacher, that led to such creativity? And uh, we don't know. I mean, it could be yeah. selection effect, like, okay, he, he was famous, so, you know, anyone who was ambitious tried to get into his lab but i think there has to be more than that well this is a theory about creativity is like do people do creative people get together and then they kind of like feed off of each yeah. other or do creative people like attract each other well, these things are understudied um in in the book i i touch on some of the research which is so scant it's wild to me how little we know about creativity at different levels so starting with the individual it's like the psychological research on creativity is so lame it's like these observational studies of like people in a room and they give them a box of candles and, you know, in uh, and, and some matches or something. They're like, oh, what can you do with this stuff? And then based on how many different ideas they come up with, you know, this is how creative they are. It's like such a lame way to measure uh, creativity. Um, and, then, and then they try to like, you know, they'll look at famous people and then they'll try to distill personality type archetypes and so on but it, it's it's not very accurate and there's so many different types of creativity so that sucks there's not a lot of research into that there's zero research into it seems like these creative clusters like why do creative people congregate and then you know turn blossom into some kind of movement um why does it have a life cycle why does it seem like there's growth you know peak and then decline mm -hmm. um, that could apply to a city as a whole. So ancient Athens or, um, you know, Paris in the 1920s with poets and painters. Uh, that is very little. That's not understood well. You know, the origins of these things, I guess we know how to kill it. That's pretty clear. It's like <laughs> you know, cities can kill their creative clusters. Yep. Uh, but how these things arise, we don't really know. And then lastly, the nation as a whole. It's like, you know, countries, We've talked about the U.S. is like maybe we used to be more creative than we are now. That's certainly true of other times and periods, like the you know the British Empire and before that, you know Florence or whatever. We could go through all these examples where a nation was creative; it no longer is. Um, and then we could do cross-country comparisons. So it's like, why is the United States more innovative than Canada or the UK and so on? And, and even then, we don't really have a lot. There's not a lot of research. So that blows my mind. It's like across all telescoping out for all these different, from the individual to the institution to the country, 
Um, we don't really have a good understanding of what promotes creativity. We don't even know how to measure creativity. And yet our entire civilization is based on this. It's like <laughs> we, we depend upon discoveries in science and technology um, and, and better ways of life and learning about the human condition. And yet none of our institutions seems to care at all about the origins of these things and how to promote them. <laughs> right. Well, they're kind of stuck in the assembly line status quo. It's like we don't when when something is working. People don't care to kind of figure out a new way off of it unless yeah. you're, you know. It's just good enough. You're right. It's going to survive. It's like, okay, it's just good enough to make it to the next year. Well, we've fallen off that assembly line, you yeah. know I mean? But it, it makes sense why we don't understand creativity because it's dynamic. It's yeah. movement. It's not a static thing that we right. can study. I know. One of the cool things that came out in the last year was this documentary about the Beatles. I keep telling people to watch it. I mean, you really have to like the Beatles to watch it because it's like 10 hours, but you could watch three hours. And one of the astonishing things is like, okay, they were filming the Beatles as they wrote the Let It Be album. And you actually see Paul McCartney conjure up out of thin air some of these songs we all are that are now immortal. And to just witness someone like messing around on the bass and then like carving a song out of like humming and then all of a sudden he's singing Get Back. It seems like a miracle. It's like, how did this happen? This man just wrote Let It Be in front of us. <laughs> That's like, funny. Oh my yeah. God, it's so funny you mentioned this because last night I was like scrolling through TikTok and I saw P. Diddy listening to um anywhere by 112 i love r&b so i'm listening so they're all in a conference room and i think he was p diddy at the time might have been puff daddy but he's in this conference room and they're playing the song and they're all like yes this slaps you know this is a banger and he's taking a little bit of like you know on the side and that's why the video <laughs> blew up but um but you're yeah right. those moments are really special and i think they yeah. inspire people because it's it, to, to witness that creativity is so unusual and yeah. it seems like a miracle, but yeah, it, it is also when like humans are at their best. So it's weird that we don't understand it more, but when we do see it or when it's dramatized in a movie, um, I don't know. I love those kinds of stories, like how someone came up with a song or. Um, Me too. Everyone does. Everyone really does. Really cool stuff. And, oh. and, and I wish we celebrated that more. Yeah. Um, because then, then it seems possible. It's like there's a path that you can take to get to that point if you're younger and you see people who are capable. It's like, oh my God, yeah, this person wrote that song. And it wasn't always great, too, right? It's like, here was the seed. And then in the studio, you see them develop it and produce it, change it around, and then, and then they have the final product. I Actually, I hate to admit this, but Taylor Swift is <laughs> I'm, I'm not a swifty i'm not a swifty but someone turned me on because they knew i'm they, they knew i love uh these moments of creation and i guess in the maybe it was like her 1989 album it was her first pop hit album and people started criticizing her saying she's just this pretty girl who sings and she took offense to that because she's actually the songwriter uh, or, you know, the main songwriter on all her songs. And so for her next album, she took her iPhone and she started recording the genesis of every song for that ne next album. And, and she ha you can see some of these on YouTube where she starts 
as she like gets home from going out, it's like midnight and she sits down at the piano and she starts humming a little bit. And then like a week later, she has a hit. It's like a full song and you see her go through that. And I'm like, holy shit, Taylor Swift is incredibly talented. <laughs> so like, I think uh, if we had more of that stuff out there, maybe it would be uh, inspiration to people because it makes it seem possible to, to do new things. You know what? I think you're onto something with that. And I think with the advent of social media, I was thinking about like the equal and opposite, like the Kanye descent, like with, yeah. I don't know if you saw on my other podcast, we had a challenge to watch his, the documentary when it came out okay. and we just, and we were just, oh my gosh, we were captivated by it. And now with everything that's happened, it's like you watched a jet just like, you know, <laughs> miss its landing. But with social media, we get to see that. And I think there's a really interesting opportunity with like we're talking about like unbundling the university, but mm. like rebundling it. Cause I think what's missing from like the Coursera, the white, you know, startup right. school, not only is the signal missing, but I think there's something that happens during that time while the clock mm. tower is running that yeah. you have moments like that. Cause I'm thinking about a professor I had who had this wacky idea. Um, it was in bacterial pathogenesis, I think was the class. Mm. He had this wacky idea that mycobacterium caused Crohn's disease or Jakob Crutzfeld disease. Wow. He was so into it. Like he had, you know, this like germ theory to the extreme. And I remember I was so inspired mm. in that classroom. And it only happened a couple times with a couple different right. professors. But I was like, damn, I want to be like this guy, so excited and passionate. Mm. And he has this origin story of like where he found this thing. So the university does an interesting job for some people of creating inspirational yeah. moments like that. I, I think you're right. Is um, It's that, I mean, that was the original question you asked like 20 minutes ago. Sorry to sidetrack. But what's still good about universities is I think you're right, is it brings in people of all different stripes to think, you know, really deep thoughts and profound things or explore certain areas, it still does it to some extent. And it's probably the only thing that does. It. And I think it's important that it's uh, physical proximity as well to mm -hmm. go back to that apprenticeship model. Um, because it is like those people who, you know, the random bumps where people pass, you know, they, they're in a pub and they're just having a beer after some lecture and then some idea comes to them. Yeah. So I, I, I think, in, in terms of the unbundling and rebundling is like, I think there is something to be said for physical proximity, especially in that younger period in your life when you're trying to figure out what you want to do. You have a ton of energy. I don't know if it's biological or not, but there is something about, you know, our minds are a little more fluid, it seems, when we're younger. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like we could get rid of the coursework in some respect or whatever. Right. It'd be cool just to bring people to some uh, campus-like area. That's what I've been thinking. It's interesting the way you describe the decline of San Francisco, but with every decline, there's a rebirth of something new. Mm. You know, Greece declined and Rome took over, but the, I, I see this kind of like dissemination of Silicon Valley. It's kind of exploded all over the place. So like you're in Colorado. So just your mojo kind of being out in Colorado as a sentinel mm. is a lot, you know, and that mm -hmm. kind of could create something physical around you. That's, yeah, that's actually a surprising response to my book is um, people want me to answer the question, where's the next Silicon Valley? It's, like, no, <laughs> it's, it's like distributed. Yeah, I think it is. That's what I see now is just all these. So, uh, the Bay Area still has a lot of interesting people, but a lot of people have moved to Austin, to Miami, New York. 
and I don't think any one of them is going to like break out as the, as the clear winner, but, um, a lot, yeah, there's just people all over the place that said though. So I moved to the mountains in Colorado. I love hiking and it's just astonishingly beautiful, but I do find myself hankering for these types of conversations we're having now. And, and, and zoom is great, but, um, I, I, I find that's that what you just said about the campus. It's like, can, is there some place I can go to from time to time? where I can, you know, push my ideas out, get feedback, uh, interact with people. So for me, it's, it's more like this pulse where like, okay, I can be introverted, explore these ideas, go on a hike, and then I need to come back and hit, bounce these ideas off people or laugh or just have fun and then, you know, go back. And, and so if I think of the history of science, it's like if you talk to economists, they're they like they see cities as very important and they are but mainly because of this function of of you know ideas bouncing off each other because there's so many people there's so many ideas and then these ideas are mingling and that's what drives innovation so if you're not in a city then you you probably won't be creative and there's a part of me where i'm up in the mountains i'm like okay there's some truth to that but if you look at the history of science though it just does seem to be more network based where mm -hmm. i mean the, the invisible college and the royal society and so on it's like there was this republic of letters where newton was i mean he was an isolated person by choice but he still would send his letters out to people to test his ideas or to to criticize them and so on so i'm hoping that the networks we establish going forward might be strong enough to still propel some creativity, even though everyone is in the same city in a sense. Yeah, we were forced to go remote and we haven't quite figured out how to recreate the, the physical social glue that was there. Right. But the pandemic, I bounced out on my job, you know, in biotech mm. and I started a book club because- oh, cool. I, I hated being in biotech where I felt like I was like just a salesperson to these people, um, like selling science in a sense. Yeah. And I, they didn't want to hear my ideas. I wasn't really allowed, you know, FDA type shit to talk about ideas. Um, yeah. So I started a book club with people and like these people have become some of my best friends. And I started a podcast with one of the guys. Wow. And it's been filling this intellectual void for me. But now... What's missing for me, when I, when I applied to grad school, I said the thing that I wanted was to maintain a continuum of learning and application through research. And mm. I feel like I've got all the learning, I've got all the discussing, like it's the doing that I'm mm. missing. And I, one of the things I talked about with one of the guests on the show who's doing a speculative science journal online called Seeds of Science. Have you heard of this? Oh, no, I'll check it out. Yeah, um, he's actually the one who I found you through because he okay. reposted some other podcast you were on. <laughs> okay, cool. Rogers Bacon. He's in the whole Scott Alexander. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, we need these kinds of, these places to be cohesive and for something to develop. Mm. But there's not enough action, I think. They're like, everybody wants to do something, but it, right. nobody cares about ideas. It's like the execution is mm. what matters. And I just feel like there's such a big hurdle for people. It, it reminds me of working in a nonprofit. Have you ever worked in a nonprofit? <laughs> yes. Like I was, I did some nonprofit work on anti-corruption stuff when I lived in Oregon and I was making so much money. I was just like, dude, money controls everything. And I felt yeah. a amount of guilt. 
but it's I, the way I describe it, working at a grassroots nonprofit is like trying to convince a, a, a million people to bring a knife to a gunfight. Like, it's just, <laughs> you know, trying to get people to do anything. The incentive structure is just not there. Mm. Yeah, so, at a nonprofit, right? It's like no one, it, it's almost the incentives point in the opposite direction. It's like by continuing this letting this problem fester and not ever solving it will ensure that this nonprofit exists forever. And so we'll just load up on admin. Even with what we're doing now, you know, the incentive structure. So what I was going to say earlier is this idea of like these places you can go to get that intellectual stimulation. I know mm. you travel a lot and you right. did in the book, you talked about going yeah. to the hackathons. No, I still do. Yeah. Well, the thing I was thinking though, about most, VCs and the whole, I, I had a little startup where I, you know, I did this, mm -hmm. I did the Y Combinator thing and I was thinking okay. about pitching and I did all of this and it just felt so sterile. Mm. It, the, the VC startup world feels so much less warm than the academic intellectual world mm. because it's like, no, we got money, we got deadlines, we got outcomes, we got, <laughs> yeah. you know, and so I think that kind of hinders a little bit of the, the spark. You sound like uh, Dan Aykroyd in Ghostbusters. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you remember in that movie, he's like, I've worked in the private sector. They expect results. <laughs> they do. Yeah. Um, and the startup level is, is stifling, I think. Yeah, I, I know. I, I feel like there's a polarity here. I wish we could find some uh, creative balance in where in Silicon Valley, I noticed there were lots of doers and dreamers. Uh, but there was no rigor. It'd be like, hey, we're going to get to the moon and and I'm going to build a kite to get there. <laughs> and and the person would actually do it, though. You know, they'd go out there in the middle of the desert and try to launch something up into space. Just baloney. Like yeah. But then on the other hand, if I go to Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's uh, all rigor and no action. It's It's yeah. like really heady intellectual stuff, but no one can do anything or wants to do anything. They just want to talk about it. So I don't, if we could somehow combine the rigor of Cambridge with the dreaming of, of Silicon Valley, I think we'd be, we'd be on our way, but <laughs> I don't there know it if it's neat. There it is. That's the goal. I think you're absolutely right. I, yeah. I think there are small ways to foster it. It's like, how do, you, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And I think when I saw what you did, I've looked at other venture firms. Yeah. It's like, you know, when you're, when you're doing a startup, you think like my husband bootstrapped his business and we were like, nah, mm -hmm. we're going to bootstrap this whole thing. Um, just be like real maniacs. But I was looking into all that, you know, I looked at like Greylock and like, so you talked about this in the book and mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, I understand the Anderson Horowitz, right. the dynamic of all these things. It's just your, your fund is, seems very wild. Yeah. We're not like other VCs. You know, we've touched on my background some, I, you know, former PhD dropout writer. Um, and then my co-founder, she started a charter school in San Diego, Innovations Academy. She's a principal there for, for a time. She's still on the board. They let you guys hold a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the fact that the two of us with no background in finance started this VC fund and the fact that we mainly back people who don't have credentials and then the further fact that we're successful, I thought was an interesting business story. So <laughs> I'm on the podcast to talk about the book. That's the book if anyone wants to read it. But, but I think, you know, I think a lot of innovation always happens with these boundary type figures. I mean, uh, this is part of that creativity thing 
is trying to pick up on on some of these patterns and and there is an insider outsider aspect to a lot of new things and i think danielle and i bring that where okay we did work with peter Thiel for some period period of time we did gain some knowledge of the fundamentals but on the other hand it's like we have no business doing what we're doing because uh our background and who we are but i think that's why we're able to to free it up a little bit and uh, we do give out 1k grants i'll you know be at a at a coffee table in minnesota or something and someone's telling me they need to buy a few things to run an experiment you know i'll kick them a thousand bucks over venmo i wish it could be in a white envelope in cash because that would be even more shocking but people are so surprised they're like holy shit, really i i can just do this i'm like yeah go for it you know and and we've seen a lot come out of that it's like we've given out 300 of those 1k grants and maybe like 12 or 13 of them are our businesses now and that, that's a pretty high hit rate for a thousand bucks i wish we had more of that in science that's part of that like i wish we had free-flowing grant money for people to do things and then our investments yeah we we try to back all sorts of different stuff not just based on whether or not the person has the credential but also are they doing you know we do back renegade scientists who who have an interesting take on something that that we like is it science fictiony um, so as a fund, we we do try to we're we're doing something different from the mainline funds up on Sand Hill Road. But on the other hand, it's like we're just the early stage. So even if we invest, you know, four hundred thousand dollars or a million bucks, that only gets someone you know, a year, eighteen months, um, and then after that, they're going to need to to raise more money. And 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 so if if even if they're doing something crazy, if they haven't hit or rather mainstream, you do need to hit some milestones that those normal VCs will understand and then be willing to take a risk on. I, I think VC, it's like it's good and, and maybe underrated in some ways, but it's also overrated in others. Where it's underrated is I think a lot has come out of it, you know, in terms of if you just look at the S&P 500, right? A lot of the biggest businesses were venture backed. And so to that end, I think it is stimulating innovation but like this model where you know we we make investments and then we have to assume that the business is going to grow to such a big scale in order to justify the risk that means there's a whole group of things that we can't back just because we can't convince ourselves that it it, it can turn into something enormous so mm-hmm. a whole bunch of things aren't being funded that maybe should be and then there's this model where yeah you get a million bucks and in, in uh that gives you about a year 18 months to get to the next level where you raise more money and that's going to get whatever that next amount of money is that's going to get you another 18 months so that scaffolding with with money it's good and in some ways it just doesn't lead to big breakthroughs because you have to be able to hit these milestones on that cadence in order to raise unlock the next round of money and so if you have a project that requires 10 years and, and a lot of basic science research, venture capital is not going to be good for that. So I think, yeah, like you're saying, I think it, it can be over-professionalized. It can be conservative and risk-averse in its own way uh, and limited in, in its effects. But uh, as newcomers to this game, we're doing what we can to, to yeah. really change it a little bit. It's a start. I think anytime you introduce some element of novelty, you're doing something good because mm. it just makes me think of a bunch of different things that could be tried. You know, like there, if you think about the way pharma partners with academia, it works. These companies partner with these academic research labs that are doing things yep. that 
take 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, I was working, my favorite mm -hmm. startup I worked at was working on a technology called antibody drug conjugates. And it's basically you mm -hmm. put a payload on a targeting antibody and okay. it goes and you know blows up a cancer cell. But the the technology was 30 years old. I mean, it was old wow. when I was learning about it. And I once said to our CEO, I remember <laughs> this is one of my favorite moments of like my career because the look on his face, we were talking about rebranding and it was crucial that we get this study you know, accomplished. Mm. And I said, yeah, we're like the baby Huey of startups. Like we're a 30 year old startup. <laughs> you know? um, yeah, he, he seemed to like it or appreciate it, but yeah. they've done a really good job of that. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't, I don't have the knowledge into nuclear energy or, you know, a lot of these other problems. Like I know you have a, like a LIDAR company. Yeah. Luminar Technologies. Luminar is a big, yeah. I, and I know you said Austin, the founder of that company, he went, I think his mom drove him to Irvine or something when he was a kid. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was a lab rat when he was a teen, this young guy, like playing around with lasers when he was 13, 14. Can you imagine? <laughs> And like, yeah, and taking was... it seriously and worked with him. <laughs> yeah, right. That's pretty special. I don't know all the people in his life, but you know, whoever it was at some of these labs who said, "Yeah, it's pretty cool. Come on in here. Let's <laughs> work on some stuff." I think that was that was a miracle because um, it's pretty rare to you know be physically near a lab that happens to make lasers and you have an interest in that. So. You know, big break there, but but it, I think it was important for him to, uh, you know, soak in that knowledge as a as a teen, even though he wasn't he was in high school somewhere else, he was yeah. still learning in a lab. I don't, yeah, it's good to hear that in some areas the commercialization of research is is underway. I guess because the stakes are so high, the amount of money involved, it makes sense. I guess, but some schools I see that like the the intellectual property stuff you're talking about thirty years. I, yeah, I think universities can be quite greedy when it comes to the IP and the ownership. Some schools are good at it because I guess they've done a lot. MIT, Stanford, they're they're pretty good. But then I'll come across some midwestern, you know, university. It could be Purdue or someone, and it's like they want to own sixty percent of anything invented in their labs, and that just halts the progress because if you take away the incentive of anyone to commercialize it, then no one's going to bring it to market. And so I think there are a lot of discoveries that are just sitting on lab benches and universities because the university just won't, you know, relinquish some of the IP. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and you can't disentangle that from NIH funding. So you can't say, yeah. Oh, let's create an incubator and give, you know, all these scientists resources over here outside the university right. and they can use their grant money because the NIH won't allow it. They're like, no, mm -hmm. the institution is part of the reason we gave you money. It was right. fucked up. And then there's the, it's like the, the types of people who want to be successful pro professors aren't necessarily the types of people who want to start companies, they right? shit. Yeah, they just want to. They just want to get tenure so they can chill yeah. and and breathe. Like these people, I've realized they're in crisis. When mm -hmm. I left academia, you know, I was hyperventilating when I hadn't read a paper in you know six months or whatever. At least not in my domain. I was reading clinical papers. Mm -hmm. It was upsetting, but I kind of like coped through it myself. I went like cold turkey by myself. But <laughs> there are whole groups online. And a lot of times like coaches have kind of like dominated these groups to like help people get, it's like breaking free wow. from a cult yeah. to get out of <laughs> academia. They're just, right. they're shells of people from what I've seen who've lost all spark 
Oh my they, god! It's but just, what? They, but they won't leave because they are attached. They're to trying. Their, yeah. But like, like I mean, I remember when I was thinking about leaving. I was. I had just started my postdoc, and mm. I felt very lonely. It wasn't the right fit for me in any way. And I said to my husband, "Like, I'm like, I have no skills. I could just pipette." He's like, "Girl, <laughs> he was. You know, he was in recruiting, so he was like, you're brilliant. We'll get you a job. We'll, yeah. Give me a give me a job description.'" He's like, clinical research, you you know that. I'm like, I don't know that. He's like, you know that. Oh my God, right. You know, you know how to learn. So, but a yeah. lot of academics are very literal. They don't understand mm. that they have the skills. Right. They don't That's see the, they, you know, there's people who see their job and they're like, this is my job. Like my job was to disseminate scientific information to mm. healthcare providers, but they don't see what your job really is. Yeah. Like that's not really your job. The company really pays you because you finesse, you know, mm. because you look smart, because you talk smart, because you, right. you know, you, you're a beacon. So like academics don't really understand their real job. Mm -hmm. Or what skills they have. I mean, even just being able to write grant proposals and write it all, I think is a skill. I, even though if you come out of a PhD program, you still need a break of some kind. And, you know, someone's got to give you a chance. And I think just based on the ability that people have there, if you went to a PhD program, you're probably pretty smart. <laughs> and if you just get a foothold somewhere, I think you'll be on your way. It can be hard. I, God, I saw some stat recently that there were like, you know, 1300 history PhDs minted in the last year, and then only like 100 of them got jobs. I wonder what the other thousand are doing. Baristas. Yeah, right. They're out there looking <laughs> for work there. So there's this idea of the overproduction of elites. Yep. And maybe everything we're talking about is like this conflict of the elites, because it's like you and I are outside of the ivory tower and in some sense antagonistic to it. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, the mere fact that there's, I guess we're part of the overproduction. And so we're, it's like, we're a, yeah. a, a revolution fomenting because, you know, there's too many. Too I many say that all the time. Yeah. Peter Turchin was talking about me. Yeah. <laughs> and you, setting things on fire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but in a way it's good. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's like, you read the book and there's the inspiration and hearing mm. your story is very inspirational, but you don't see the tedium of it. Like mm. oh. one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was, you know, going through everything you went through, like in your book, you talked about the kind of like the backstabbing and the, you know, mm. the weird stuff that happens, but it's difficult. And I'm wondering what is the biggest challenge for you to help your companies succeed? Yeah, there's a lot of tedium, a lot of hard work. I mean, I, I write a book and it encompasses 10 years in a few hundred pages. So obviously a lot's going to be left out. Everything from just the hard work of accounting to um, the day-to-day -day stuff. Uh, for us, the the earliest stage, we, we invest at the earliest stage. The number one issue everyone has right away is is how to make hires. And so a lot of our time is, is just spent. I mean, I, I talk about like companies hungry for talent for grad students out there. Go visit our website. There are lots of job openings uh, and companies are just hungry for talent. Um, so the number one issue a lot of these companies have is just to have, you know, who are my next five hires and how can we help them find them? Um, we're not great. I mean, we, I've been in the business now for 12 years, I suppose. So maybe I have some sense of strategy, but I feel like every business is different. So 
people shouldn't listen to my strategy too much. <laughs> um, we, we believe in the, in the founders. So, uh, you know, if, if they can't figure out a way to help, you know, get this company to grow, there's no way that we can. So we're generally hands off. Uh, but yeah, we, we check in with our companies every two months, light conversation. It's not like a board meeting, but we just sort of want to know what happened and, and where they're going. And, and that's it. So it's really, yeah, it's, it's like in some ways it's like we can do, there's only so much we can do to try to help them succeed. I mean, there's the basic stuff, but uh, meaning like accounting, operations, the really hard thing is building a product or service that someone wants to use. And, and that's that creativity piece that I think just can't be taught. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. I think uh, I think uh, VC is kind of a black box for anybody who mm. has an idea or is thinking about it because most of us creative people, like I, I, I hate fucking doing my taxes. Yeah, um, right. Exactly. I just want to die. Uh, it's like it's a it, you know I have to like really ramp myself up for it. Like, and I think a lot of people who have brains that are interested in hard problems, mm. they see things like that as you know, it's yeah. fucking worst. I, I agree. I mean, I, I think a lot of people are like that, especially on the creative side of things where maybe they're open to new experiences. They relish the chaos a little bit, but in order to make something happen, you do need to bring order to chaos. And that can be, that can be troublesome for people. You know, one solution around that is we back teams. So it is always great to see if there is someone who's more of the uh, wild scientist than that person has found a more grounded, conscientious person to, to team up with and, and handle the accounting and the financial mm -hmm. stuff. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, every so often, one, one of the weird person, like there's a big five personality traits. Um, and one of the things we did notice is that, uh, you know, a lot of the more successful people somehow have a strong correlation where they are open to new experiences, but they're also conscientious. Mm -hmm. And it is pretty rare to find that because those traits seem to be inversely correlated. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it is rare to meet that, but they're out there. Some people who are wild and free and free spirits, but on the other hand, when it comes down to it, they can execute and get things done and they're organized. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In my discord for my book club, we have like immediately you need to take the the big five, and then we need to know like how open are you to like disgust? Because um, <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. like you know, those are the things you have to have a high level. Of conscientiousness is not so important for our book club, but it kind of is. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's why you know that's why my book club's not working because, and I'm, I've stopped doing it for a while. But nobody wants to read the fucking book, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the conscientiousness is uh, yeah. You're, and it's I like everyone it. loves the idea of reading Dostoevsky, but actually sitting down and <laughs> reading 800 pages. You get like, yeah. <laughs> I'm in this philosophy discord and there's a movie, um, the Brothers Karamazov. Um, it's a mm. long ass movie, but there was like three people, there was, it was an event and they were like, oh, we're going to watch this over discord together. And then we're going to discuss it. And I'm like, oh, cool. And there was like two people in there. <laughs> and then which, one of them dropped yeah. off after, you know, right. so, it's like you can't even get people to watch a movie. Um, I have this idea in my head of, uh, you know, all these tech bros. I hate software, by the way. Like, mm. you can't, you couldn't pay me enough to get back into software. <laughs> okay. um, but I have this idea in my head of like these young, you know, tech bros who like mm. sleep on each other's couch and they, you know, they're just like kind of bumming around 
and somehow right. they make the shit work. But like for anybody else who has interest and openness mm. and conscientiousness, where do you find these people? Yeah, that's a big question. I think because it, it like we're not making advances as fast. Like software has stood out so much because it was like this one frontier where people could build things cheaply and try them out and at low cost and, and they could really scale to the whole world. Um, but these other areas of science, whether it's energy creation or even, even farming and freshwater creation or uh, transportation and so on, I think we just haven't seen the same rate of progress. And that's why it seems like it's harder to actually find in real life. There aren't as many companies working on flying cars as there are on some stupid like buy now button mm -hmm. um, or, or <laughs> some chat software for <laughs> you know, sales success or whatever. Um, so yeah, that's, that's depressing. Cause it's like, I wish, I think the science and technology would be more exciting if people conceived of it as less of like mobile phones and more as like, Hey, I'm going to go to the moon with my robot friend and have a good weekend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how, how do, how do we find those people? I mean, it's, it's about, I'm, that's why I'm on the road all the time. I'm just constantly trying to meet people in, in different places. Uh, I just cold outreach sometimes or always constantly trying to tap into networks. So if I meet one person who works on satellites, you know, I'll ask that person, okay, well, and, and you know, who are the three other people I should talk to that, you, you know, and they're out there. Maybe it's not like three bros on a couch, but, uh, <laughs> but they're out there, a uh, few of them, but, but we're trying to help them get started. Uh, the whole tech bro thing, yeah, I feel like, um, you know, one of the things that changed it that, that wasn't really noticed was, like, everyone just, like, thought it was white dudes from Stanford. You, like, saw the media obsessed Not. with white dudes from Stanford. No, no they're Indian. Indian dudes too, yes, right? they're, they're Indian <laughs> and Chinese. Like, these companies now, I, like, the new WASP is white and scared of programming. <laughs> like I, I go to hackathons i go it's like there are no white dudes it's all indian and chinese uh young men mainly, young men. mainly young, young men. they're not dudes they're young yeah. these are young men yeah um although there are more women now at hackathons coming up so that's good to see but but yeah it's interesting is like are they doing ux ui html css <laughs> <laughs> really? truly i mean or maybe python maybe yeah <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're waiting in the controversial territory. But. I know, I know we are, but it's the truth. I mean, the, the, the numbers just aren't there. Like when I, when I started this startup, for my, it was mainly for my husband because I'm bored as shit in my career, you know, mm. I could do with my eyes closed for the uh, biomedical stuff. You know, I started probing it in my husband's business. I'm like, okay, you're a killer recruiter. Like how do we productize mm. what you have? And we, I started reading the book Platform Scale. Okay. And I was like super into it. And I'm like, we're going to build a platform. And I'm like, I'm going to learn JavaScript and just build it my fucking self. And I did. <laughs> yeah. um, and then I, I realized how much I hated sitting in front of like my huge vertical screen, looking at lines of code mm. and the spaghetti of the code. Now, when we brought someone else in, they had to like, it was oh, just, yeah, that's a mess always. oh, it was like not, and I'm alone. It was just not, I was the only person on our team who knew anything. And I knew mm. almost nothing about DevOps and all this shit. Um, but there's no women. Yeah. I mean, th th there's none. There's like almost, and like you're looking for, I like was looking through your, the type of people you're looking for. You've got some really obscure mm. people you're looking for technically. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, uh, 
the the Venn diagram overlap of of character traits that we're looking for is is vanishingly small, just because it, well, and that's mainly because like the type of person who can start something is pretty rare. Right. Um, there, there's a million, you know, Golang developers or whatever, but how mm. many of them are willing to not just sit and write code or like, mm. you know, you know, incorporate? It's a totally different ball game than yeah, when you're right. ten different things. That's why, yeah, if you look at Facebook or Amazon, and not a lot of people have come out of those companies to start new things. And I think in part because it's like they just became a magnet for the type of person who does want to work within an institution, not rock the boat and just make a ton of money. And then it is a very, coding is just a very lonely job and you're interacting with a system. Um, and I think women just aren't drawn to that. I think it's just, you know, I'm one of these, maybe it's too controversial, but I think women prefer, you know, interacting with other people more than men. Like men can stare at a system of inputs and outputs and not, get nearly as bored as fast as women. So Yeah, the difference is not zero. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like what you're saying is it may not be as big as everyone thinks it is, but the mm. difference is not zero. Women have a, have a lot of other competing interests. And when you right. when you look at all the hurdles it takes, and, and again, maybe decreasing these hurdles to start early mm. on, you'll avoid some of that because like women in their reproductive years, there's, a, there's yeah. another kind of time, you know, a, a clock tower they're up against. So, right. but if I... You know, I got my PhD when I was, I started when I was 21. Okay. Oh, and I wow. thought I was ahead of the game. I know, yeah. right? I was like, and I bought a house. I was just like, you know. Um, <laughs> you were I adulting. Shit to do. Quick adulting. Um, yeah, like, it dropped me in the bucket. But um, <laughs> if, af if I had realized sooner that I didn't want to be in academia or that it wasn't going to be innovative, um, things might have been different. And if you mm -hmm. can get women in earlier, there are kind of like already hooked into their career before because there's an identity crisis when you become a wife mm -hmm. when you become yeah. a mother that i was a scientist before i became any of those things mm -hmm. and so my identity was glued as a scientist yeah i um, yeah i don't know what the solution is to that i think because if you look at the the wage gaps it's it's really a pregnancy gap where yes. um yeah it's the women who take time off to have children that really end as up they should them. yeah right yeah so i you know it's like yeah but what do we do i'm not i don't know the answer to that but it, it, it's it's a problem because people want to do that i mean they want to have families for one thing mm -hmm. but on the other hand then there's the society-wide issue of like maybe people aren't having enough kids just because the, these pressures are so great i don't you know it's like in in my sci-fi version of this it's like is there some way where people could have kids younger maybe i don't know it's like are they it's like they're bad, bad idea bad yeah, bad, bad idea. idea they have more energy or maybe women can just start sooner it's like yeah can we get people to the frontier sooner it's like okay you were 21 maybe what if you were 18 and you started your phd mm -hmm. and then maybe um by the time you're 28 and you start a family it's like you've already got a decade of experience i'm i'm, I'm not sure but yeah it's it's a tough tough problem right now because there's no way it's like everyone wants to have it all but i think having it all is just like really impossible well i think you can have it all but not all at once i think like cheryl sandberg said that she's, okay. I know she's like out of favor now but there's something that really struck me when i was in grad school um and you said in the book competition is for losers did you say yeah, you said yeah that, right? that's something yeah. peter teal would say yeah um oh that's something he said I, hmm. I agree because when I was working on something, I remember my boss saying, like, if I need to look at the p value, it's not hmm. significant. 
Like, it, you know, <laughs> I want to work on big changes. I want you to be yeah. able to isolate a problem and work on it in a big way. And um, it's funny because like I, she told me to have a baby the last year of grad school. And so I did. We calculated oh, it. Like, Is that because it's just like a good time? In yeah, terms I got a grant. Of workload. Okay. Yes. So like, she was like, write a grant and then you can have your baby and you can, and you'll be right back to work like a week later. It'll be fine. Um, <laughs> which my dumbass thought, like, yeah. but then while I was pregnant, weird things were happening. Like I was in a committee meeting and I couldn't think of the word and I'm like snapping to capture it. And I'm like, oh, it's this fucking estrogen progestin thing that's happening in my brain. <laughs> I study sex differences. Oh, funny. But I didn't anticipate wanting to take time off of work, but I think what can happen and what probably needs to happen is we need to make room for women to be able to do to be able to have their have babies and mm. come back in a, in a in a capacity that they want to come back right because this goes hand in hand with the competition is for losers thing if your company depends on one person a key man or key woman mm. who is now out on maternity leave you fucked up right and in certain environments, it does, but you yeah, got sure. nine months to plan for that shit. Yeah. You just need to anticipate her brain is going to be fucked afterwards. <laughs> like, who knows what she's going to do for a year? Yeah. You know? And it's and it's probably a good problem because then you've got someone else coming in to kind of look at that person's work and mm. a lot of things happen in that time. So That's I true. think if, if we want to solve that problem, we can. Yeah, I, I don't know if the, I, I haven't come across other countries that that seem to have solved this problem either. I mean, even if you just cut people checks and have a generous so, social safety net or something, it still doesn't, you know, change the fact that it takes time to raise a kid, child. It does. Have it. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. you know, the, the and then the further dystopian science fiction ideas that we'll just have these uh, external wombs at some point. <laughs> I don't like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think there's things we just have to accept. Like, you know, my kid's 10 now. And wow. I feel like I'm like, okay, I can finally like, I can start thinking about stuff again. I can move and shake again. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that <laughs> right. first, that, that period of your life where you're, you know, you have to, you're beholden to a little entity that a terrorist that needs has demands, you know. <laughs> and, uh, one of my friends described uh, early parenthood as you're on suicide watch 24 seven. <laughs> For, for four years or so it's like don't touch that hot plate stop walking on this <laughs> cliff <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so well, i think part of it is you know we need to be more free range with that kind of stuff but yeah that's true um but no i mean this uh i, I think we're coming up on time here but <laughs> okay well we can end on that optimistic note right no it's gonna be fine <laughs> everything's gonna be we're gonna solve all these problems it's just okay. a matter of time <laughs> Thanks for joining us here on Neo Academia. For next episode, we'll continue to explore the shifting walls of the ivory tower. You can see the full video of this episode on YouTube and sign up to receive episodes, show notes, readocracy collections, and bonus content straight to your inbox at theorygang.io.